Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we'll be looking at Fangs of Fury, book 39 in the Fighting Fantasy series, written by Luke Sharp with illustrations and cover art by David Gallagher. Before we get into it, I need to thank a returning patron, Carl Rosati, who has been kind enough to put his hand in his pocket to support my nonsense. Carl, thanks so much for your continued support. It's thanks to people like Carl that we do a bonus episode of this podcast each and every month, and that I've been able to produce the first season of my new podcast, Popular Antiquarian, in which I look at old media because old things are cool. The second episode should already be up by the time this goes out, and I'm examining a particularly interesting episode of the real Ghostbusters cartoon so why not check that out. I'm also currently deep in the weeds on a new adventure gamebook, which will be going out to patrons as soon as it's finished. I don't have an estimated completion date for the first draft yet, but the whole thing will be finished and sent out before the end of the year. If you want to help make all of this content possible, then why not go to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledge as little as a single English pound or local equivalent. Any and all support is deeply appreciated. Fangs of Fury is the fourth and final gamebook written for the series by Luke Sharp. Luke Sharp started off terrible, got worse, but then managed to pull things together at least a bit for his previous title, Daggers of Darkness. I'm curious to find out if he can build on the good elements of that book and deliver something special for his swan song. He's not short of ideas, but he struggles to turn those ideas into good mechanics and tends to write with all the breathless excitement of a letter from the local authority announcing that the bin day is changing. David Gallagher has provided a number of perfectly decent covers for the series, and this is another solid image showing a monster with a flaming sword bellowing atop a two-headed snake. He really does seem extremely angry, and he's covered his armour in spikes, because why not? Gallagher hasn't done internal art before, so that'll also be quite interesting to look at. So, let's take a look at the rules of the game. We are in classic fighting fantasy territory with skill, stamina and luck all present and correct. We've got ten provisions and we see the return of the magic potion, which can restore skill, stamina or luck depending on which you choose. The magic potion hasn't been featured for a while, so there's a nice little bit of nostalgia there. We've got a time mechanic, very similar to the poison mechanic he used in Daggers of Darkness. This time there's a city under siege, with 14 walls gradually falling to the invaders over the course of the adventure. Lose all 14 walls and it's game over. I've said before that time mechanics work best when the time units are intrinsically flexible, and this is a good example of that, so no complaints from me. We also get a set of four magic cubes, which can absorb fire, and a magical torch. The obligatory sword and leather armour are also present and correct, and we've got ten whole gold pieces to spend on whatever we come across. I've rolled up a character, I've decided to give the extremely heroic moniker of Croydon Slowhammer. Hammer of Slough. They have a skill of 12, a stamina of 22, and a luck of 10. I've chosen the Potion of Luck as my magic potion on the basis that Luke Sharp previously has shown quite a love for the old luck test, and 
the additional point of initial luck that the potion provides will probably come in handy. With all the preliminaries out of the way, let's get started with Fangs of Fury. I can immediately see that this is a slightly thicker tome than some of the previous Luke Sharp books. Hopefully that means he's writing in a more expansive way. Looking at the background, it's quite a few pages, so uh, strap in for the traditional fighting fantasy info dump. Background. Just after you took that one step forward, you knew that it was a mistake. You remembered the training camps, the old lags, men and women who'd been through the wars. They used to say, never volunteer, that's rule one. And here you are, in a besieged citadel, one step forward, with the rest of the troop chuckling behind you. Captain Lasky smiles and marches you to the inner chambers. Occasionally you hear a crash and the ground shakes as another large rock is catapulted against the citadel's massive walls. You are angry at yourself for your lapse, and hope that you're wanted for something like an extra watch, or a sortie for prisoners, or perhaps a water detail. You are marched straight into the king's chamber. It is warm and comfortable inside. King Elidor is standing by a huge round table, and around him are the twelve wizards. There are other attendants and bodyguards in the shadows. Well, this is already a more emotional tone than we've seen from many Luke Sharp books, so that's encouraging. The king is studying a large map. Now and again a fine dust settles on the table, and Snuffsirk, the king's chancellor, wipes it away with a red cloth. Your Majesty, I have the volunteer, Captain Lasky proudly announces. The king looks you up and down. Step closer, brave warrior. Your heart sinks as the others stare at you. From what the king just said, you know you volunteered for something dangerous. You have explained the situation to the volunteer? One of the wizards asks Captain Lasky. My troops were all informed that it was an extremely hazardous mission. You look at Lasky, but know that you can't contradict an officer, even less change your mind. Well, I think it's time the volunteer knew all the details. The wizard bids you follow him to the table, sits you down and begins to explain. My name is Astragal. I am one of the Mage Order and these, he points to the others, are my fellow wizards from the surrounding lands. This is where we discover that I'm a complete hack, because if I wasn't a complete hack, I'd have gone back and listened to one of the previous episodes where Astragal features and attempted to copy the voice that I gave him then. But I didn't. I'm sorry. You'll just have to hope that this is in some vague way familiar. I mean, I only know how to do about four voices, so there's a decent chance that I'm going to hit on one I've used before. As you are well aware, he continues, the Citadel of Zamara is under siege by a massive force led by Ostrogoth the Grim. But what you may not understand is the reason for this attack on a small city kingdom. Ostrogoth wants to kill us. He points again to all the wizards, and they look a little uncomfortable. He wishes to conquer all the southern lands of Kool, and knows that the wizards of the Mage Order will only work for good, never for evil. Under the influence of the evil enchanter Jaxartes, 
Ostrogoth decided to strike at us once and for all when we were met here. He has waited seven years for the opportunity and has mustered a massive force. If we are all killed, the land will be prey to the evil magic of Jaxartes, once the most powerful of our order, but cast out for delving into the dark arts. You have seen the size of the fleet and army numbered against this tiny kingdom of Zamara. If he succeeds here, Gorak, Kazan, Transoxalia, all of southwest Karl will fall to his power. So, the usual blizzard of made-up words. Transoxalia sounds like a gadget for pairing socks in the washing machine. I could use one of those. You may well ask why we did not foresee such a danger. For your answer, look out of that window at one of the stick-stone sentinels of Zamara. They are not just massive statues of dragons. They are our defence. They breathe the fire from the fangs of fury. I do love it when the name of a book gets featured in the text of a book. Don't know why, it just pleases me. The dragons were charged to destroy any evil force with a speed and viciousness undreamt of by any mortal. You stare at the vast stone creatures and can only utter, But why? Yes! Why do they not attack now? Because their fire, the living flame, has been extinguished. Some traitor has craftily spell-broken their eternal breath. There is a genuinely profligate use of capitalised words in this introduction. Uh, fire and flame in the previous sentence were capitalised as was spell broken. And indeed eternal breath. Which brings me to you. Your heart sinks as Astragal points to an object on the table. He picks it up and hands it to you, intricately carved with all manner of symbols it is made from a white horn-like substance in the shape of a small torch. All twelve wizards here have combined their power to produce this apparently insignificant item. The stone sentinel's fire must be rekindled. If this torch is lit at the fangs of fury, the dragon's breath will flow again and the creatures may perform their hideous task of destruction. Jaxartes will have knowledge of the torch, the traitor will see to that, and Jaxartes will want it in his possession. He has invested too much of himself in attempting to bring our destruction, so he fears this torch and its bearer. And there have been rumours of black-cloaked figures appearing on the battlefields outside the citadel. If these prove to be his mage warriors, you must be ever cautious for they are extremely powerful and dangerous. Does love also, Luke Sharp, to have a whole bunch of lieutenants who've got exactly the same name and exactly the same stats? Uh, saves him from having to come up with multiple different monsters or indeed to provide any detail which might differentiate one mage warrior from another. I am certain that Jaxartes will try and extinguish the great flame at the core of fury. Therefore, speed is of the essence. There is no time for careful penetration of the siege lines. We have, 
however, one ray of hope. The volcano is the centre of a strange religious sect. The name of the religion is not known, but its adherents are called Wizari. They it was who supplied the original flame for the sentinels. They may help you, but beware, no other may carry the torch to the furnace. Oh, strap in, because there's another two pages of this to get through. Your task is this. You must break through the siege and head north towards the high mountains and find the volcano known as the Fangs of Fury. He points to the map which shows a drawing of five fangs clustered together. You must go into the depths to the very core. There you must thrust the torch into the white-hot inferno. At that moment the sentinels will awaken. But you must beware. Jaxartes knows the secrets of the fangs of fury. It will be guarded by all manner of fell beasts. Astragal walks away from the table and takes a sip from a flagon handed to him by an attendant. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I too am going to take a sip from a flagon handed to me by me because my throat is quite dry from all that over-impassioned speechifying. King Elidor then speaks to you. It is my belief that one determined person can pierce the siege lines better than a host of knights. It was my decision to use none of the knights of the order. Their faces are too well known in Zamara. If you wish to refuse, do so now. You know that this is your only chance to go back and not get involved in this risky venture. But somehow you find you cannot say anything. Astragal comes back. The heat of the core will be intense. You must protect yourselves with these. He hands you four small black cubes. Each one will absorb the power of a white-hot sheet of fire on one occasion, and then disintegrate. Unfortunately, we have no others here. If you find any more, take all you can, for you will surely need them. You notice that there is some plain leather armour on one of the chairs. Captain Lasky motions for you to go over and to put it on. Just as you slip off your livery jerkin, another wizard appears in front of you. He has dark, distrustful eyes and holds a bracelet. Could this be the traitor? The inevitable traitor? The omnipresent traitor? I think it might just be. I have convinced the mage order to fit this on your wrist. It will glow when Ostrogoth's force has broken through each of the fourteen citadel walls. If the final wall is breached and we are killed, you will also die. So do not think of escaping once you have got through the siege lines. You cannot remove the bracelet. However, if you succeed, it will fall off and you may keep it. It will make you very wealthy. Thank you, Morgrek. Astragal says with a slight air of distaste. I can hear the battering rams pounding at the main gate. Ostrogoth's creatures must have crossed the moat. There is no time to lose. There is the introduction, which was lengthy and uh, was the traditional fighting fantasy info dump of everything that's gone on. I do think there's an argument sometimes for starting 
in the midst of the action just in order to shake things up a bit but hey ho it's a tried and tested formula evil monster wants to do a bad so uh first section proper you are taken to the deepest part of the citadel captain lasky and two soldiers march in front of you and the twelve wizards shuffle along behind you astragal looks at you shakes your hand warmly and wishes you good luck he then stands back with the others captain lasky orders the soldiers to lift one of the slabs in the chamber they prise it open to reveal a set of stone steps leading into a tunnel the captain then gives you some advice keep to the left-hand wall don't light a torch you may be seen and well good luck you are amazed to hear a good word from your hard-bitten captain you check your pack equipment and the all-important torch hidden in the secret panel of your leather armor and step down into the dark hole so there's a picture of astragal and some soldiers standing in front of the opened slab showing a dark and forbidding passage down it's pretty good wouldn't say it's exceptional it's pretty good i quite like the scale armor that the soldiers seem to be wearing and they've got kind of pointed helms yeah it's fine just then the ground shakes as another boulder slams into the citadel walls you look up captain lasky pokes his head into the hole and screams at you and make sure you succeed i won't have you besmirching the honour of the seventh foot sloggers his head disappears and the slab is dropped back down you are in complete darkness you feel your way along the left side of the wall for about 400 paces and then you fall over a pile of rubble you get up to find a tunnel ahead is blocked you listen carefully and can hear shouting and screaming you also smell faint whiffs of fresh air you feel around in the dark and find another smaller tunnel on the right your first instinct is to go back but you realize that from here on there is no going back do you want to take the tunnel to the right or do you climb the pile of rubble well the pile of rubble is to the left and i will go left even if the way is obviously blocked because that's how we do things over at fantastic fights never let it be said that my commitment to the bit was anything other than utterly dedicated you scramble up the pile of rubble it moves under you and suddenly you see bright sunlight you scamper up and at once hear gruff voices shouting commands just then you slip and a large warty hand stretches down to help you up you stand there blinking in the bright light and see a goblin smiling at you behind him a group of soldiers are pushing a giant battering ram against the huge outer defenses of the citadel there is dust and smoke everywhere you look down to see the rubble move again and the hole you emerged from seal itself the goblin shouts at you watch your step next time i'll let you get buried now who are you and what regiment are you marked for i don't see any insignia do you admit that you don't have a regiment or do you give him a name so i guess i will just try and give him a name the 15th heavy bad people 
In Zamara, you've heard stories about the bone crusher battalion, so you decide to use that name. Sensible. The goblin immediately pulls out a sword and holds it to your throat. The bone crushers have not landed yet, Coney. He calls out to one of the other soldiers. Get the list, I think we have another spy. The goblin marches you to a deep earth dugout as another goblin arrives, clutching a large battered book. He looks at you, then flicks through the pages. The book seems to contain information about King Elidor's knights, squires and nobles. The goblin shuts the book, disappointed. Nobody important. No ransom. Kill him. Do you shout out that what you meant to say was that you want to join the Bone Crushers, or admit that you deserted from the Citadel garrison? I think we'll claim to be a deserter on this occasion. You want to make your story sound plausible. From the Citadel, eh? And you're deserting. You'd better come with me. He keeps his sword against your back and marches you through an intricate series of trenches, some of which are still being completed. You are taken to a great wooden wagon that has metal bars at one end. The goblin places your sword in a barrel and you are thrust into the wagon. The door is locked behind you. Wait there! shouts the goblin. You will see the Inquisitor. She never fails to uncover the truth. As he marches off, you notice the bracelet glowing. Mark a captured citadel wall on the adventure sheet. Thirteen walls now remaining. You look at your fellow prisoners. There are two other soldiers, a woman in rags and a bald-headed man in monk's garb. He is sitting cross-legged, staring at you with a smile on his face. He is apart from the others and proceeds to call you over with a beckoning hand. Do you go over to him or keep to yourself? Well, we need some help, so we will go over to him. This is genuinely a bit better written than previous Luke Sharp attempts. I would still describe his style as somewhat minimalist. He doesn't really describe people in any great detail, but we do at least learn that one of the men is bald, which is a distinguishing feature. So, you know, baby steps. But yeah, we'll go with him. You go over to him and sit down. He looks at you with intense, fiery eyes. Yes, trust is the way. I know your mission will be hard. You must trust. There is no other choice. Do you have the torch. You are shocked by this question. What do you reply? Do you say that you have it or say nothing and move away from the old man? Oh, could the old man actually be the Inquisitor in disguise? Or is the fact that I'm currently reading a pulp crime novel about a master of disguise messing with my head? <laughs> um, I'm gonna trust him. Um, I've ended up in such a terrible situation right from the outset that I feel as though I'm going to take a chance and trust this old fellow. If you can't trust an old man in a fighting fantasy book, who can you trust? You whisper that you have the torch hidden, but he does not seem interested. He is satisfied with your trust. He says nothing for several minutes and then speaks. You must leave this place. I will help you. My name is Ken Doki, a monk from the Order of Wazari. There is no need for explanations. The prophecy has told us all. 
the way you follow is very hard, and I am here to be of some little help. He opens his palm to reveal a large white die. He hands it to you, and as you reach out to take it, it disappears. But you have a vision of it spinning in your mind. This is the die of the seven levels of the Wizari. In your travels to the Fangs of Fury, you must look clearly and carefully, even at times of the greatest danger. If you see a vision of a piece of thread linking six white cubes, you may spin the die in your mind and aim for your true level. Be true to yourself. You will not physically handle anything, but the number of white cubes you have will be known to others when you reach our sacred centre. Throughout your mission, you must look carefully at the page illustrations you encounter for the thread and the six white cubes. If you see them, throw a die and mark the number rolled in the lower cubes box of your adventure sheet. Well, I was wondering about that. If you see less than six white cubes, you may only have up to the maximum number that you see. If your die roll exceeds the number of cubes you can see, you must round the number down to the number of cubes you can see. So, quality bit of game design here, because the first instruction, you must look carefully at the page illustrations you encounter for the thread and six white cubes, is then contradicted by telling you that there could be less than six white cubes. This is not clear rules writing. However, I do like looking at the illustrations for clues. That's a thing I like very much. Uh, I think it's something Luke Sharp used in his previous adventure as well in a couple of places. So once again, he's going to his familiar bag of tricks, but I can't begrudge him this because making use of the illustrations is just cool. The monk then stands up. I see the need for explanation in your eyes. I do not have time to go into details. Others may do that. It is enough to know that Jaxartes is killing our people, the guardians of the furnace, and is trying to extinguish our noble flame at the fangs of fury. Look to the novices, the fighting arm of our order, those that are forbidden to speak, the Wizari silent knights. They will help whenever they can, but even they cannot hold out against the massive evil sweeping the land. I will now entrust you with the greatest secret. I will utter the name of our religion. That will consign me to death in one year and one day. Look to Zen! X-E-N. It will help you pass gates that cannot be passed. Now the true way is yours to find, and you must lead. A lot going on here. So we've got black cubes and white cubes. And now we've got a magic word. X-E-N is remarkably close to Zenu, which, as I'm sure you're all aware, occurs in the secret mystical teachings of Scientology. I wonder if it's a deliberate reference. The monk stands up and gets hold of the metal bars and pushes them apart with seeming ease. Zen is powerful, but I cannot profit by it. I must stay here. He bids you farewell and sits down again. The other prisoners charge out of the prison and you follow. You step down and find your sword in the barrel and duck down under the wagon. In a few minutes, the alarm is raised by coarse-sounding bugles. You know that you would be better concealed in a group. 
Do you head for a group of infantry resting on a nearby field, or wait for a company of orc cavalry with attendants waiting to the right of the camp? I'm going to head for the group of infantry. I think I'll blend in better with them than with orcs on horses, as I am not an orc and do not have a horse. I feel like even the most moronic of guards can probably spot the difference in that particular uh, image. You know that you must try to stay with a crowd. You look purposeful and head towards the group, when suddenly a goblin sergeant grabs you by the shoulder. Where do you think you're going, scum? You point to the field of soldiers. Those are elite troops, while you are scum, and obviously new to this army, curse these conscripts. You will come with me. It's the irregulars for you. Left, left. Lots of words there in capital letters for emphasis, but also the phrase curse these conscripts is in brackets. Now, I realise that I'm at best an amateur writer, but as a general rule, when writing dialogue, it's not generally a good idea to include things like brackets, because how do you pronounce a bracket? I mean, it's not a rule. You can include brackets in speech if you must. But I was always taught that you need to keep things simpler when you're writing dialogue in terms of punctuation marks, because real human speech doesn't have punctuation marks. It just has pauses and emphasis. So sticking in like the capital letters for emphasis, that's fine. Uh, but a bracket signifies neither a pause nor emphasis. And therefore, yeah, it's an issue. To me, at least. I'm nitpicking. You are marched to a large field full of men, women, children, orcs, ogres, every type of creature. There is no apparent military order. Everyone wears an assortment of armour and you can see an amazing range of weapons. Some that you recognise as Amaran. The goblin speaks to one of the roughest looking men there. He sits on a rock, massaging his feet. The goblin then leaves. The man, who's also very fat, gets up and waddles over to you. Again, there's just little things wrong with the writing. It's probably the wrong way round. Like, if it were me, I would go, the goblin speaks to a fat man sat on a rock massaging his feet, then leaves. Then, as the man approaches, you're able to see his face more clearly, and then you describe how rough-looking he is regardless. He calls two others to join you. He faces you. So you want to join our illustrious regiment? In normal times we would accept none but the most high-born, but seeing as there's a war on... The other two are sniggering and laughing. Just give me all your money and you're in. Do you want to refuse to give them your gold, which is your only option if you have no gold? Give them half your gold coins or agree to give them all of your gold? I'm not giving these people my gold. I will say that the decisions that have been made so far in this adventure have been pretty good. Um, they've felt, yeah, appropriate without being overwhelming. But anyway, I'm not giving them my gold. It's my gold. Also, my mission is to get to a mountain and a volcano, not to join the army that's besieging the citadel I'm trying to save. I mean, it's, yeah, there's a sort of bleak humour in 
basically accidentally getting conscripted for the very siege you're trying to break. You stand there, not saying anything. The captain sits down on an upturned stump and tries to put his boots back on. All right, you two. A third share each. The two soldiers draw swords and attack. Fight each in turn. So, the first knuckler, that's what they're referred to as, uh, has a skill of five and a stamina of eight. The second has a skill of six and a stamina of seven. For the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the knucklers. They inflicted no damage upon me, perhaps unsurprisingly. If you win, the captain finally gets his boot back on and looks up. Good, he pronounces. You're in. Do something about those bodies. After several hours of sitting around watching the well-disciplined regiments march past, you realise why they're called the Irregulars. There is no order at all. Disputes flare up, fights break out, people stab each other. Suddenly, however, with no word of command being issued, everyone gets up, picks up their own particular weapons and moves as a mass towards the siege lines. You walk with the rabble and see a company of mounted orcs waiting to engage a force of Zamara knights who have just charged out of the citadel. The tactics are very simple. The irregulars charge at the knights, slow them down and any that get through are dealt with by the orcs. A squad of Zamara knights charges straight at your group. One Zamaran, who you recognise of Peric of Inak, is unseated close to you. The weight of his armour holds him down. A goblin runs over and prepares to cut his head off with an axe. Do you decide to help Peric or do you choose to mount his horse and break out? Oh, there is a difficult choice. The hero inside me desperately wants to help my downed comrade, even if he is posh. Uh, but at the same time, I really do need to stop besieging this citadel. Um, that's quite important. So with heavy heart, I'm going to try and mount the horse for a breakout. You leap up onto the knight's horse and ride through the melee. Arrows are fired at you. Oh, it's a Luke Sharp book now. We've had some arrows fired at you. Test your luck. 10 which is equal to my luck so I am lucky and I'm not hit by any arrows. You try to ride away from the fighting but two mounted orcs begin to give chase. You set off at a gallop across the battlefield. Throw two dice for your speed on the horse and then throw two dice again for the speed of the orcs. Oh another Luke Sharp classic. If their speed is greater than yours they catch up with you. So so 50-50, how fast do I ride? Yeah. Seven, middling fast. How fast do the orcs ride? Eight, slightly middling too fast. You turn to fight. The orcs seem a little surprised that you should do so. The leading orc growls at you. I don't care about you damn irregulars, but give us that horse. There's good money there. Do you let the orc have your horse or do you refuse and prepare to fight? I'm going to prepare to fight. I'm going to race against time and a horse would be very handy. They stop when they realise they've got a fight on their hands. One of them places something in his mouth and you hear a high-pitched whistle. Your horse begins to rear violently and throws you to the ground. 
test your luck. So kind of need to pass this one because if you're unlucky, one of the hooves hits you in the head. Deduct one point from your skill, but no points from your stamina. So nine. I have just made my luck test. An opportunity to get kicked in the head by a horse in a way that causes brain damage but doesn't hurt. Uh, however, thankfully, lucky, so um, yeah, I'm fine. The orcs laugh and take the horse and ride off. You get up and dust yourself down, then you stand on a tall rock and look over the smoky battlefield. All is still now except for the moans of the wounded. A thick mist descends upon the grim landscape and you hear the creaking of a cart coming towards you. Do you move quickly away from here or take a risk and lie on the rock to see who is in the cart? It's the uh, cart for the dead and wounded, I suspect, so I shall try and move quickly away. You continue in a direction that you hope will get you away from Ostrogoth's siege armies. You head for the coast and eventually come to the cliffs. Below you is a sandy cove. Just then you see a figure swept into the shore by the waves. The figure lies on the beach motionless. Do you climb down to investigate or do you decide to walk further along the cliff tops? I will go and investigate. I'll always go and investigate. You approach looking carefully at the scene. The figure is a female warrior and she is about to be dragged into the water by an octopod creature. Its tentacles already have a hold on one of her legs. You pull out your sword and chop at the tentacle. It takes you three hefty strikes before you cut it off. So there is a picture of the woman on the beach being grabbed by uh, an octopod creature, which the illustrator has decided looks like an octopus. And fair enough, it clearly is an octopus. It's not bad. I like the sea in particular. I've always liked sea imagery, so uh, that was always going to play well with me. But there's a broken sword on the beach, and I can see one, two, three, four, five, six cubes coming from the pommel on a string. So I get to roll a dice and add a number to my white cubes total. One. One white cube. The woman gets up and runs away from the beach with surprising agility. Do you follow her or carefully look around for any other creature? I'm going to follow her. Uh, she might have some kind of clue. We'll skip over the optics of a heavily armed man chasing a woman down a beach. <laughs> the woman leaps up the cliff track. She says nothing, but when she reaches a certain point, she stops, sits cross-legged and shuts her eyes. You stand next to her, not knowing what to do. Eventually, she opens her eyes, points to you, and indicates a path that goes back up and along the cliff top. So she's one of the uh, the Wazari um, silent fighters, I guess. She then smooths out a patch in the dusty ground and draws a tent with an insignia of vultures' wings. You try to talk to her, but she goes back into a trance. You leave her there and take the route she advised, trudging along the cliff. The track leads you back into the siege lines, but down below, amid the mess of a campaign army, you see a series of tents, like the one drawn by the woman. Do you go down at once or stay where you are to observe? I really am struggling to get 
out of this siege. Uh, I'll go down at once. We're on a clock here. Your eye is distracted by a glow from the bracelet on your wrist. Mark a captured citadel wall on your adventure sheet. Now 12 walls remaining. I've been recording for 45 minutes and I have yet to make it out of sight of the citadel. I really am not doing desperately well. Surveying the scene, you can see a lot of activity. Weapons, siege engines and towers are being moved hither and thither. No one takes much notice of you. All of a sudden, a squad of long-nosed orcs appears. You guess that they are the legendary Sniffer Orcs. They are marching towards you. You know that you must hide. There are three tents in front of you, each with their own peculiar insignia. Which do you choose to hide in? The skull with the horns, the clawed hand, or the vulture's wings? Well, the vulture's wings, I think we will choose. There's a picture of the camp. It's okay. It's a slightly T.S. Lowry-esque picture. The um, small figures do have a little bit of that kind of matchstick man look that I associate with Lowry's work. But anyway, we will go into the tent with the vulture's wings because pretty sure that's what she said or didn't say. You enter the tent and find a cloaked figure in the dark recesses. He speaks to you. I have been waiting for you. Come, put on this armour. You look astonished and distrustful. He sees this on your face. Fear not, he whispers. The word has been written and passed among the Wizari warriors. They and their allies will help you whenever they can. You are the prophecy. Come true of the new age. The winter will be over. You will fire the spring. I am what you may term a spy. I gather information for the silent nights. Now quickly, put on this armour, helmet and visor. You must ride a patrol north. The rest is up to you. Good luck. Add one point to your luck score. Luck now nine. You get outside with your helmet on, visor firmly down. You clank off towards a waiting horse that has the same insignia as your armour. Two dwarves rush up to help you get onto the horse. They make a mounting block out of their bodies. They are chained up and seem to be around solely for that purpose. You canter off, but you are suddenly joined by six other riders. You ride in silence, far out beyond the siege lines of the north. You know that you must get rid of the patrol, so you send five of them on a sortie east. The one remaining rider will not leave you when asked. She, it appears, is your bodyguard. Do you try to outride her or just turn around and attack? Do you know what? You get so cocky when you've got a skill of 12. I'm just going to stab her. You attack your bodyguard. Although she is not a full knight, she is very well trained. The bodyguard knight has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 9. Should be pretty straightforward with my skill of 12. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the bodyguard knight without taking a single point of damage. I've been rolling exceptionally well in all of my fights which seems like a bit of a waste given that all of my fights so far have been very easy maybe i need to change to a, another set of dice uh, maybe i've rolled all the sixes out of these ones you get off the horse when all is clear and take off the hot 
heavy armour. When the armour crashes to the ground, the horse breaks away from the branch you tied it to and gallops off. Inside the armour, you find a small purse containing five gold coins. Gold, now 15. You rest and look around, add two points to your stamina. Then you notice the bracelet on your wrist glowing. Mark a captured citadel wall on the adventure sheet. So that's three walls down, 11 remaining. Recalling the urgency of your mission, you get moving again. You find a track leading to what looks like the river, another leading to a wider road. Which way do you go? So, um, I think we can follow the river north. Now, there is a map on the inside cover. Uh, it's not credited. I presume that means it's Dave Gallagher since he's done every other bit of art. No, no, I tell a lie. It's uh, Steve Luxton. I've found it on the inside cover. Uh, the map does show that there is a river leading broadly north, so we'll try and follow the river. You walk for a while along the long grass. The river is further away than it had first appeared. Eventually you reach the bank. The water is not swift flowing, but it is clear and clean. You take a drink and two points to your stamina. Stamina still on the maximum of 22. When you raise your head, you see two sets of small red boots. You lift your head up further and see the owners of the boots are dwarves. They both smile. One of them bows slightly and formally introduces himself as Skiff and his colleague as Sprig. They both point to a rowing boat. Skiff explains that customers wishing to travel upriver are few and far between now that the siege is on. He asks if you want to hire a boat to go upriver at the very reasonable cost of one gold coin. Uh, yeah, that seems fine. I mean, um, the last fighting fantasy book, the dwarf in charge of the river crossing was a right wrong un, but these seem like more traditional fighting fantasy dwarves. Good, stout-hearted fellows. So yeah, we'll reduce my gold to 14 and hire us a boat. It's a nice little thing, actually, with the two dwarf slaves who helped me get up onto the horse, that it provides a contextual clue, if such were needed, that dwarves are not generally on the same side as orcs and goblins. And if this was your first adventure game book, you might find that useful. You get into a brightly coloured rowboat and the dwarves begin to pull at the oars. They are very pleased to be getting a customer. The boat is old and leaks. Now and then one of the dwarves bails out the water with a green cup. No physical description of the dwarves whatsoever other than they are dwarves. But he takes the time to let me know that the cup they're using to bail with is green. You are grateful for the rest. You ask them of any dangers ahead to the north. Skiff tells you of troops of orcs, soldiers and goblins on raids of plunder, but nothing else. Suddenly, Sprig shouts, Giant! And both of them disappear over the side of the boat. You turn around just as a giant hammer crashes into the boat. Test your luck. Seven. I am lucky. Luck now eight. Uh, if you're unlucky, I would have been showered with wooden splinters for 1d6 damage. The boat sinks with you in it, then a large arm reaches into the water and plucks you out. How has this giant managed to sneak up on us? It's at least 12 feet tall. No, no, bigger than that. Actually, I can see, I can just see the 
dwarves swimming for the shore and they are absolutely tiny. This this giant is the size of a skyscraper. How has it managed to sneak up on us? Was it just pretending to be a hairy tree? Quite a nice illustration of the giants. There's a particular way of doing monster faces that I associate with British fantasy illustrators. And this is definitely one of those and I like it. Oh, I can see dangling from his belt. One, two, three, four, five, six white cubes. So I get to roll a dice and add that. Roll another one. Not doing very well on the cubes. Doing all right on everything else. So do I want to draw my sword and stab the giant or go quietly without a struggle? I think I'll let him carry me wherever he's going to take me. I can always stab him later. The giant drops you into a large sack. He walks off humming something like fee-fi-fo-fum. Inside the sack there are various bits of animals, vegetables and lumps of coal. After a long time all of the contents of the sack are upended. You fall onto a rocky floor and find yourself in a cave with a large fire blazing at the entrance. The rest of the cave is strewn with all manner of rubbish. You look at the giant. He has sat down and is staring at you as he munches at a piece of cow. He then speaks in a booming voice. Where is Jack? And Jack is spelt with D-J-A-K-K. He looks at you expectantly and then puts on a high voice. I don't know. He then repeats the question. Where is Jack? You think that he is demented. Do you humour him and give him a location for Jack? Whoever he might be or do you tell him you don't know? I mean I guess Jack's up a beanstalk. Is that an option? It's slightly aggravating sometimes not to be given options for what you want to say. Um, I feel as though there should be at least a couple of different answers we could give. Um, that's the sort of thing that does have a tendency to break immersion a little bit. He looks at you expectantly as though he knows the answer he wants. You look around the cave and point to the dark end of the cave. He grabs you in one hand and a burning log in the other and takes you deep into the cave. It is littered with skeletons. Yes, here is Jack, he screams, pointing to one of the skeletons laid out on a pedestal. He begins to laugh and thinks this is a great joke. He drops you and you land on a vast hoard of gold coins. Take gold and run, he shouts at you. You grab a handful. So you get four dice worth of gold. Thirteen gold. Taking the gold up to twenty-seven. You realise that the giant is reenacting some kind of ritual. Do you run towards the dark end of the cave or towards the front? Um, I think we're going to run towards the f front. See, there are some good choices being offered here. Oh, I genuinely don't know. Uh, ugh. This is a really weird encounter. And I don't feel as though there's any kind of contextual clues that will help. That's not a criticism, by the way. I think weird encounters are, are really good in general because uh, they do get you thinking a bit and make you realise you're in a fantasy world rather than somewhere where the answer's obvious. You always need some weird stuff 
in your game book. You run into the darkness, but you can still hear the giant lumbering after you, shouting, Jack and Fee-Fi-Fo-Fum. You can see nothing in the dark, but just then you feel something at your feet. It seems to be a thick creeper growing downwards into another chamber. Do you wish to climb down the creeper or continue along the cave? I think I'll continue along the cave and hope the giant falls in. You run into the darkness. The giant calls out to you. No, you play game. Come back. He stomps after you, picks up a handful of stones and throws them at you. Throw a die. This is the number of stones that hit you. Three. Three stones hit me. I lose three stamina points, taking me down to 19. So an hour in and I've lost my first stamina points. That's got to be some kind of personal best. You race along until you reach the end of the cave. You feel around for a bolt hole as the giant lumbers towards you. You find a wooden trapdoor in the floor. You pull on it and it opens easily. You jump in and shut it behind you. The giant is too big to follow you, but you can hear him shouting, The little ones will get you! As you wonder about his threat, you turn around and then you see exactly what he means. A large group of gremlins, all looking murderous, are emerging from the walls, ceiling and floor into a corridor leading to a large wooden door. You have no choice but to run through them. They stab at you with their daggers. So it's not dark anymore in the unlit cave. He hasn't mentioned that there's a light source, but presumably there is. There is a picture of the corridor with many little gremlins um, who look truly ill-tempered. Gremlins are another one of those fantasy monsters where no two people can quite agree on what they look like. Do they have wings? Don't they have wings? These ones are kind of troglodyte-esque creatures with pointed noses and ears and sharp teeth. Sometimes gremlins look more like little gargoyles, but these ones are sort of little goblin-y creatures. Oh, and on the door I can see the traditional six cubes suspended from the door handle, so... Let's try and get something other than a one this time. It's another one. Kind of one of the joys of randomness. That uh, three rolls relatively equally spaced out in the text. And they've all come up exactly the same. Ooh, this is, this is dangerous. So I'm being stabbed by a horde of gremlins as I run through the corridor. I've got to throw three dice. And that's the number of stabs that are aimed at you. Then I throw three dice again for the number I manage to ward off. If the stabbings are greater, then I reduce my stamina by the difference multiplied by two. So potential to lose 30 stamina points in this particular minigame if I roll really badly and they roll really well. That is, of course, vanishingly unlikely. So how many stabs? 14 stabs. How many warding off of stabs? 13 warding off of stabs. So uh, I lose two points of stamina. That's actually quite a nice little game. Although there is a, an outside chance of getting absolutely 
cut into pieces by the gremlins the fact that on three dice you've got a nice little bell curve of results that kind of cohere around the the middle results means that it's actually pretty unlikely and that's good randomness to me where most of the time you're either going to ward off the damage or suffer a bit of damage but there is that outside chance that you could just end up hacked to pieces by gremlins in a tunnel if you manage to reach the door it opens easily and you rush through and bolt it behind you you are in a torchlit tunnel there are various things lying around buckets shoes hats bones rotting fruit and a pile of sludge that smells awful you walk along and the smell gets worse eventually you get to a shaft or well you look down to see a pit full of the sludge and you look up to see daylight just then someone coughs behind you do you pull out your sword and attack or calmly turn around and see who it is first first the giant now this random person has managed to sneak up on me in a well-lit tunnel where have they sneaked up on me from you come face to face with a strange little creature seemingly a cross between a dwarf and a man orc wearing a spattered leather apron and cap he's holding a dirty shovel he coughs and speaks <laughs> careful not to fall into this muck the smell lingers you sniff him and agree with his statement are you lost he squeaks at you he explains that above you lies the village of Teriakit. he also explains that his job is that of muck shoveler no one else will do it he says he shows you the way out by a rope ladder hanging against the side of a wall you thank him and climb the ladder you find yourself in the fresh air and also in the central square of the village looking around you see two inns and feel an almost instant need for refreshment which inn do you choose the ferret's claws or the gannet's nest i think nests are more comfortable than claws so we'll go for the gannet's nest the gannet's nest is not a popular tavern there are a couple of dwarves and a few locals at the tables in the corner are three rough-looking men they carry an array of weapons and look like they've seen battle they laugh swear and curse at a bald man who's trying to sell them some sort of trinket the bald man is unperturbed he passes you and asks if you want to buy a crystal ball for good luck sure one gold coin yep that's fine the man places the crystal ball on the table you move to hand over the coin put your money away he whispers and look closely the crystal shows an image of three knights on a grassy hillock holding broadsword and shield in various positions you look back at the old man seek the three wazari novices they will guide you to your goal for there are e'en now many dangers he looks at the group in the corner your face has been posted rogue catchers are interested in you beware head for the horest past the domain of kragar the snake people more speech in brackets to siklar's barrow where the wazari await now leave quickly so there is a picture of the crystal ball it's quite nice they are holding their swords and shield in various positions and there's the string with six cubes strung upon it visible as well so come on let's see if we can do better than a one 
Six, that's much better than one. So we're up to nine white cubes. You get up to go, but one of the three in the corner also gets up to follow you. Do you run away and duck down the nearest alley or walk away casually? Let's duck down the nearest alley. You run fast and drop down before anyone can see you. You weave in and out, making sure you are not followed. You make your way out of the town. You leave the village in some haste. It was a town literally a second ago. You decide to stay off the normal tracks and looking around see a vast expanse of forest just ahead of you. You reach the woods and follow what you guess to be a goat track. The track eventually meets another track that is marked with hoof prints. It looks as though three horses have passed. You follow the track until it forks. You stand there undecided then notice carved on a tree between the two paths. A crudely inscribed figure of a warrior holding a shield pointing west and a dagger pointing southeast. The hoof prints go to the right. Like shield pointing west and a dagger pointing southeast. Which way am I travelling? Am I travelling south? Why am I travelling south? I'm supposed to be going north. So if I'm facing south, which I guess is the only way that makes sense, then the left path goes to the east. And the right path goes to the west. Well, I guess, I don't know, follow the shield, follow the sword. Let's go right. We haven't gone right yet. The path gets very bushy and you suffer several bad scratches on your face from thorns. Deduct one point from your stamina. Eventually the path splits. You look at the left and see a small clearing with what looks like a pile of bones on the ground. Do you go towards the clearing or do you keep to the right hand track? Let's investigate the clearing. You pass over the pile of bones. There are other objects scattered around. Bits of old leather armour, broken swords and two leather purses. You pick up the purses and open them. One contains 10 gold coins, the other 15 gold coins. So uh, 25 gold coins making 52. Uh, I get to add one luck point as well. So luck now back up to nine. So we are having plenty of luck tests, but he's handing them out quite nicely as well. You continue walking. The forest path forks. Do you go right or left? Uh, left. I kind of want to go left to try and head north. You come to a river that runs parallel with the path for a time, then weaves away. Your sense of direction tells you to cross the river. Do you want to do so, or do you wish to stay on the path? I mean, if you can't listen to your sense of direction, what can you listen to? After a pretty encouraging start, this is turning into exactly the kind of gibberish I associate with Luke Sharp. You scamper down to the side of the river and look across. The water does not seem too deep and there are no visible dangers, only a few small fish. You wade in up to your thighs. Just then, there is a disturbance in the water. One of the small fish flies out of the water and bites your elbow. You hurry across, but more flying flesh fish flip out at you. It's a lot of F sounds. Throw two dice for the number that jump out, and then two dice for the number that you manage to ward off with your sword. If any get through, they bite you. Deduct two points from your stamina for each bite received. So exactly the same mechanic as we had just a few minutes ago. So how many fish bite me? Nine fish bite me. I ward off six fish. I lose six stamina points, and now down to Eight. Across the river you have a choice of heading for a rough clearing or along a defined path. So we're going to eat some provisions. Um, we'll 
eat three provisions, making a hearty repast of prawn cocktail, deviled kidneys and a cheese and ham toasty. That'll sort me out. And that will heal 12 stamina, taking me back up to 20. Seven provisions remaining. Right, let's go and examine the rough clearing. You get to the clearing. It opens out into a reedy plain, featureless but for the spiky reeds. That's not a clearing. That's the edge of the forest. You are bitten mercilessly by particularly nasty marsh flies. Deduct one point from your stamina. Yep, we are firmly back on the Luke Sharp nonsense train at this point. A clearing that turns out not to be a clearing, but a vast marsh. You come to a slight rise in the monotonous landscape and take the opportunity to survey the land ahead. You see two distant features in the shimmering heat haze. Ahead is a rocky outcrop with a citadel-like building perched on the top. Black smoke is belching out from the building's centre. To the left, the land becomes desert-like. There are no reeds or trees or bushes. Just one thing is visible, a tower on the horizon. Which way would you choose to follow? Towards the citadel or towards the tower? So, in the space of three paragraphs, we've gone from forest to river to marsh to desert. This is generally better written. I will say, than some of the previous attempts. But it's still got some absolutely baffling description. I feel as though if you read this back even once, you would spot how bizarre this description is. Did he read it back even once? Answers on a postcard. I've been recording for a good 90 minutes now, and I'm conscious that uh, some people have commented that the play section's I've occasionally got a little bit long, so I am going to break on that thrilling cliffhanger where we've got a choice between a citadel or a tower and go away and finish playing this game book on my own time, then return to you in just a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! <laughs> You may have noticed a very angry cat making his presence felt in the final stretch of the recording. I'm sorry about that. I'm not sure what his issue was. He had been fed about half an hour before and then suddenly became furious for no clear reason. Cats are inscrutable in a way that only toddlers can easily rival. I've got mixed feelings about Fangs of Fury. All the things that irritate me about Luke Sharp's work are still very much in evidence, but there's actually a fair amount of good stuff in there as well. I've said before that a terse style can pay dividends on repeated playthroughs, and I think that's very much the case here. I found myself warming to it a little more as I delved into it, and I wound up feeling rather warmer towards it at the end of my time with the book than my playthrough might suggest. It's very much a Luke Sharp book, and my feelings about it devolve in part from the sheer Luke Sharpness of it all. There are some familiar complaints. The writing quality is still low, an improvement over his earliest attempts, but still horribly bland in a way that frustrates me much more than the most ham-fisted purple prose. I never feel like the author has any emotional investment in anything he's doing, it's rare that 
he does anything more than the absolute minimum necessary to tell you what's going on. Dr. Seuss was famously given a list of only 250 words with which to write the text of The Cat in the Hat and somehow managed to weave magic out of that highly constricted lexicon. Luke Sharp often seems to be working with a similarly narrow dictionary but never manages to bring anything he writes to life at all. It almost feels as though he's bored with the whole process of writing and is trying to get it over with as quickly as possible. There's numerous odd continuity issues as well, none of them large, but all suggesting that Sharp doesn't have a strong mental picture of the situations he's describing. As a consequence of this writing style, some of the decisions feel involving, while others feel completely arbitrary. He uses a lot of binary choices, and this book highlights both the strength and the weakness of that approach. Sometimes he's managed to pull together two intriguing possibilities, and that adds to the sense of immersion, but sometimes it's just choosing between two identical corridors, and it feels frustrating that you don't have any contextual clues to aid your decision-making. As I often say, it's not the number of choices that creates immersion, it's the quality of those choices. Even in a dungeon corridor, you can make decisions feel a bit more appealing if you just add a few words of description, even if it's just noting that one corridor slopes down and the other slopes up. I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but if you want an absolute masterclass, in how to do this kind of thing well, go and take a look at the Reigns series of video games, which deliver an amazingly deep experience despite being entirely constructed from binary choices and using only a bare handful of words to summarise each choice. It's an astonishingly clever bit of game design. We also get plenty of Luke Sharp's favourite encounters and mechanics. Rolling some dice for yourself and some dice for the challenge and comparing those totals is going to crop up a whole bunch. What's nice to see is that we've got a rather broader range of situations being modelled by these mechanics. Sure, you'll have to roll to find out how many arrows hit you and roll to randomly determine the length of a gap you're jumping across, which is demented, but we've also got a gauntlet of gremlins with daggers and carnivorous fish to deal with as well. This is a welcome development, and while there's still an element of repetition, it's not as oppressive as it has been in the past. He does love a code, and there is a letter substitution code in this book, which is par for the course. It's just as tedious as ever. I was quite relieved not to find a solution on my first playthrough, because it meant I could ignore it. The code is useful, but not absolutely necessary to progress, so there is some balance in there as well. There's also a more interesting code with the name of the Wazari god Zen, whereby if you spot the letters X, E, N in sequence within some special texts, you can unlock a hidden section. This is much better than the letter substitution code. The key is incredibly simple, but cleverly hidden if you don't have the special knowledge necessary. This is a much better way of implementing hidden information. It's so much more palatable than laboriously transcribing messages one letter at a time whilst referring back to the code page with every letter. 
I really like it as a mechanic and it's used repeatedly without becoming omnipresent and used very cleverly as well. We've actually got a few more items than usual for a Luke Sharp book. Firstly, you've got the black cubes, which can be very handy in the later stages of the book when quite a lot of things are on fire, and a cube that protects you from fire is a very good thing indeed. I don't think they are very evocative as items. All items and keywords in general in adventure game books are functionally the same when you get right down to it. They are simply ways of storing information about the game world outside the game book. You can call a keyword or an item anything you like and yet somehow Luke Sharp has unerringly come up with one of the least interesting objects you can imagine. Would it have killed him to have the black cubes be small statues of dragons or something, anything more evocative than a black platonic solid? I remember Midnight Rogue specifying that you started the adventure with a short sword rather than the traditional broadsword because you were a thief, not a warrior. Those two items are functionally identical in-game, but it manages to evoke something about the game world when you're told that it's a short sword rather than a broadsword. If the black cubes are painfully dull, the white cubes are bordering on a masterstroke. Firstly, they have a neat mechanical effect, determining how dangerous your final approach to the Fangs of Fury will be. And that final approach is very well judged as well, with a nice range of different outcomes depending on how many cubes you've managed to find. The really cool part is obviously the way they've been smuggled into the artwork. Luke Sharp has done this before, but not to the same extent. Loads of the illustrations have a set of cubes on a string to spot, and it forces you to take the time to really drink in the artwork. And here cubes are a good choice because a string of one to six white cubes is both distinctive but also something that you can subtly include in the artwork. And I love this, but it's a pity that the artwork that's backing this idea up isn't stronger. Gallagher's work is fine, but it lacks the kind of ornate detail that someone like Ian Miller, John Blanche or Russ Nicholson would have brought to the table. It would have been wonderful to feel like you needed to scour those illustrations for any sign of the Telltale Cubes. As it is, the art is generally fairly forgettable and sufficiently simply rendered that finding the cubes never feels like a challenge. It's still a fantastic idea though, and it does make sure that the artwork feels important. In fact, the artwork feels important generally in this book since it's filling in a lot of the lacunae that litter Sharp's descriptive work. The encounter design is still very shallow. There are so many places where I wish he'd pause and let us explore somewhere at a slower pace. A good example is the village where you're only able to visit one of the two inns. It betrays a lack of imagination and a lack of depth. Without wishing to play my own trumpet, I got almost a third of a game book out of a village in Rats in the Cellar, and I made an effort to ensure that the player got a sense of the place and the various different people who inhabit it. What Sharp gives us is a choice of pubs, one of which is a traditional fantasy pub with some ne'er-do-wells in it, the other of which is immediately attacked by a fire demon for no clear reason. It's nice to see the fire demon from Forest of Doom being referenced in the artwork, but it doesn't bring the location to life by any stretch. It's as though Luke Sharp only had one idea of what you could do in a pub, and having already decided 
that there were going to be two pubs was really struggling what to include in the second pub. So many of the encounters are like this, a choice between one thing and another very similar thing, and it, and it just makes the world feel flat and lifeless. There's an interesting design point here about how you should write different levels of detail. You don't want every encounter and location to be equally detailed, and that's not always a function of the location size. Let's take two examples. A witch's hut in a swamp and a ruined castle on a plain. One of these is clearly much bigger than the other, but that doesn't mean that the castle should automatically take up more space in the text than the witch's hut. A witch's hut could be filled with all manner of weird and wonderful objects just begging to be rummaged through by an overly curious adventurer. There might be a, a magical familiar lurking in the fireplace waiting for your back to turn. The ruined castle, by contrast, could simply be a drafty monument to a forgotten battle. A few skeletons and rusted weapons, perhaps a clue that the damage to the structure was wrought by magical explosives rather than conventional military equipment. In this situation, the castle might only take up two or three paragraphs in which you explore, get some spooky and melancholy atmosphere, then leave. The witch's hut, on the other hand, might have a complex decision tree attached to it, and what you choose to examine and the order in which you examine them could influence future events. That's more like 15 to 20 paragraphs rather than the three for the ruined castle. What this means in functional writing terms is that you're probably going to describe the witch's hut and its contents in quick brush strokes. Each individual decision will add more detail to the reader's picture of the location, and over the course of their interaction with the location, it will naturally come to life. The castle, on the other hand, you'll probably want to describe in more detail because the scene is much less interactive. It's your words alone that will make it vivid and create a sense of the passage of time. This is a simple principle, but it can be tricky to actually apply. The best writers do it instinctively, but for the rest of us, it's something to try and be aware of, especially when you come to edit your work once the first draft is complete. And this is what Luke Sharp doesn't do enough. Almost everything is described in the same hurried style, and you end up with a massive swamp that is knocked off in a single short paragraph. It's notable that the absolute best bit of the whole adventure is the seemingly interminable business around the siege. I like this section a lot, partly for the irony of ending up conscripted into the very army you're trying to defeat, but also because we get to spend a decent chunk of time in the same area, and that makes the world feel that bit more well realised. There's lots of different things you can do along the way, and it feels coherent in a way that the rest of the book struggles to achieve. I enjoyed seeing all the different units and feeling the pressure as several walls fell while I was trapped in this curiously bureaucratic evil horde. Um, it's probably worth noting in passing here that I don't think you can actually take so long as to cause the whole citadel to fall, or at least not without making some incredibly specific choices. But spending all that time in the immediate environs of the battle helps sell the threat, even if it's illusory, and it concentrates the mind on the task at hand. The writing is still basic, but simply as a function of how many sections there are in this area, we get to build up a fairly detailed picture. Not everything 
Luke Sharp does is a problem. His offhand approach to encounter design means that the map is one of the bigger ones possible in a 400 paragraph book, and that's the upside to dealing with every encounter quickly. On a subsequent playthrough, I wound up messing around on an island instead of getting directly tangled up in the siege itself, and finding a large new area, even if it's completely optional, feels great. As a series of locations, Fangs of Fury is pretty good, though the early areas feel more developed than the later areas, which is a pity, but deadlines have a way of doing that. Even Dark Souls, one of the greatest video games of all time, gets a bit ragged towards the end, as the team didn't have the time to lavish the same attention on the final elements of the game as they did in the early going. One reason I like to plan books in detail before I start writing is that I can avoid this issue to at least some extent. Another positive element of the design is that the difficulty is quite low, which makes a pleasant change. There's some random deaths that come out of absolutely nowhere, of course, but there's not many of them. There's also a bunch of paths through the adventure, which I always enjoy. I beat it on my first playthrough, which is practically unheard of. Was Luke Sharp aware of the criticism levelled at his earlier books, especially Chasms of Malice, or is this simply him developing his skills as a designer? Regardless, the low difficulty combined with the large map invites experimentation. There's lots of places where all paths lead to a useful outcome, but some of the paths have more danger than others. Once you realise this is how the book works, there's a distinct pleasure in trying to find the optimal route. It's a design that encourages varying your journey, even if you've already got past an area on an earlier attempt, and I very much like this kind of design. It's a soft incentive to explore, rather than the hard incentive of trying to find items that you know you will need to progress. I think the ideal gamebook probably makes use of both approaches, but the soft approach does feel less stressful, and indeed there are a couple of important items to be found in Fangs of Fury. Some things that you'll want to be very sure you come across, like the clue to the Wizari religion, but there's not a huge amount that's absolutely necessary, and even the key that you need to beat the final encounter has an alternative solution. The fact that it's not just an endless series of fights with orcs and goblins is a tremendous relief. There's actually a faint sense that there might be something interesting around the next corner, and the fights are almost entirely pitched at a level that will make a reasonably strong starting character feel very comfortable with exploring. It doesn't always deliver, but it does so often enough that I had a pleasant time trawling through the book. Sometimes when I've beaten a game book I feel pleased to have won, right up until the point I realise I'm going to have to go back and pull it apart for review purposes. One of the hallmarks of a good book is that you want to go back even if you've made it to the end, and Fangs of Fury, for all its many faults, definitely passes that test. One last positive thing I want to point out is that there's a maze in this book and it didn't make me want to throw the book across the room in disgust. My disdain for mapping is a matter of record at this point, but the maze in Fangs of Fury manages to feel like a maze whilst also not requiring me to get out the graph paper to solve it. There's a couple of things that help it to work. One is that the threat within the maze is low. There's no fights, which feels like a good choice, and although there's a trap, 
it's not likely to finish you off if you're paying any kind of attention. The only actual danger comes from the chamber, which will cause you to strike off a city wall each time you go into it. And this is cool, because it ties the real danger of a maze, which is getting lost potentially for a very long time, into the threat lurking in the background of the story. Now, in order to get out of the maze, you need to grab six objects, each with a number inscribed on the side. And this system kind of forced me to do a little bit of mapping on the sly, since I would record the numbered objects on my character sheet, and then each time I came into a new chamber, I'd check my character sheet to see if I'd found a new object or come across an object I'd previously encountered. And that's quite cool. Mapping without mapping. This section shows that the thing to do with mazes is to remember that the maze is the challenge and you should probably allow the player to focus their cognitive load on that challenge without throwing too many other things in the way. A couple of repeatable traps isn't a problem but you want to focus your design in such a way that the player can hold everything they need to solve it in their working memory. This showed me that a small maze with a few bits of cognitive scaffolding could actually be something that is approaching fun, at least briefly. I'm still not going to be the biggest fan of mazes. I think it's worth noting that the wonderful Jim Henson movie Labyrinth quickly loses interest in presenting its heroine solving a traditional maze, but there's definitely something there. I think if I were designing a maze, I'd start off with something quite similar to what Luke Sharp does here, and then maybe start introducing mechanics that would enable me to abstract the maze more as the book developed. So maybe dole out a kind of compass that makes some of the maze sections easier, and then perhaps throw in a repeatable clue that players can use to spot the right direction and, and gradually make the decisions that the player is making more large scale than are you going to go left or right have it are you going to try and work your way north or work your way east i would say that this is the second best luke sharp book i think daggers of darkness probably just about edges the win since it felt a bit more cohesive and was drawing on some interesting and less familiar to me at least cultural tropes fangs of fury is basically a fun time and even the author's superhuman ability to self-sabotage can't change that. It's also pretty cheap for a book this late in the run if you want to give it a go. That's all for this episode. Next time we'll be looking at another book written by one of my patrons which I'm very much looking forward to exploring. There will also be another episode of Popular Antiquarian going up before then looking at a Game Boy game featuring Mario's nemesis Wario. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not leave a little review on your podcast app of choice? Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.